let the independent baseball hot stove begin. But this one doesn't just have to do with players, it's teams at the forefront. Who's going where? Find out next on this episode of the Indie Ball Report Podcast. All right, we are back again. Nick here. Co-host Will is also here. I'm going to talk. I, I was about to say I'm going to talk over him for a second, and then it just worked out. <laughs> <laughs> I am here. I can confirm. Good. We see so you have proof of life, but okay. I can also predict the future now. So this is very cool. Which means that the cold open is going to be even more right because when we start talking about these MILB teams, that means whatever I say, I've just I've had a premonition about it. So we know what's going to happen here. Exactly. We know exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. So obviously, as uh, most of you probably are aware, if you're following the social media channels or if you, you know, live anywhere other than under a rock, uh, MILB is uh, finally known again. Uh, That is to say, the major leagues released the full affiliate lists. We know, I believe it was 43 that got cut. It may be at 42 because I know Fresno finally caved and went to single A. But uh, we do know the 40 plus teams that are cut. We do know the 120 teams that are affiliated. So that's obviously going to take up the line share of today's show. There's also some, some uh, I guess, staffing moves that were announced in the Frontier League, and there's an American Association partnership. But before all of that, we do have a spiffy, yes, a spiffy interview that we did with the uh, Pinstripe Prospect founder and managing partner, Rob Pinsner. We talked a lot about Staten Island in that one, and as you know, we like to just jump right into interviews here and then uh, talk about them a little bit and then get into the news here. But uh, before we do any of that, I am going to just look for initial reactions from Will here. Yeah, so um, as, far, as far as the interview, I thought it was a really good, informative interview. I, I, as you guys know, if, you, if you've been listening for a little bit now, you know I'm not the biggest fan of the idea of Staten Island to the Atlantic League, and, and that's not going to happen this year just because it would take too long to get, you know, stadium renovations done and, uh, and, and a new ownership group in there. So it, it, it's not like a, it's not Staten Island to the Atlantic league is not imminent, but I was not really a huge fan of it. But then a- after this interview with Rob, I think that I started to understand, I guess the, the reasons behind it. And it was not so much that there's not an appetite for baseball in Staten Island, there's a, there's a there's a little more behind it, and I, I don't want to get too much away, but that that was my big takeaway from it. Yeah, there's a lot that you're going to kind of gather from this interview, and I could second all that. In that you, and he does at one point even reference a lot of people just look at the attendance and kind of make their whole evaluation off of that. But there's a lot that goes into that number, and a lot that's behind the scenes that you don't really realize is happening. And again, you're going to really enjoy the interview here. There's a lot of information about it, and I look forward to discussing it. Uh, once you finish listening to our interview uh, that we will go to right now with the founder and managing partner of Pinstripe Prospects, Rob Pinsner. <laughs> 
We are back again. We continue our series of interviews this week with uh, some very timely interviewing. Obviously, we know there's been a lot of action in minor league baseball across the board, but that does not exclude, I suppose, now partnership baseball. And part of the partnership baseball and MILB contraction news involves Staten Island heavily. So we figured, why not bring on a guy that knows the Staten Island uh, team area and really all of the Yankee farm system in general very well. Uh, we now welcome to the program uh, the founder of Prospect Pinstripes, or Pinstripe Prospects, my mistake, uh, Robert Pinsner. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm happy to share my knowledge and talk a little baseball with you guys. Well, we're very happy to have you on. And I know uh, the topic of Staten Island has been something we've talked about for quite some time on the show. And I know uh, Will's had his opinions on Staten Island. I haven't had the opportunity to actually get out there. So I'm I'm kind of uh, new to anything involving them outside of the bit of reporting we've done on it. So I guess the best place to start is just kind of a refresher on as to what happened between the Staten Island Yankees and their parent club, the New York Yankees? Well, a lot of things, really. Um, there's no one thing that really led to this happening. It is really just a bunch of small little things that happened, that came together and just, you know, added up to what we saw happen. And the Yankees didn't, you know, pull any punches in their statement about leaving San Island and the San Island Yankees didn't pull any punches in theirs either. So it, it's really just a, a clash of attitudes, a clash of outlooks. And really it's just a two, two sets of people that probably shouldn't have been working together in the first place. Ultimately led, led to the demise of the Island. Right. Uh, that theme. So it was really more of a series of a death by a thousand cuts here where it was a bunch of little things over time that kind of culminated in uh, this divorce of the two uh, organizations here. So I was wondering, what are some of the more, I guess, milestone markers in these things? Or was it just kind of a, a general attitude, like you were saying, between the two as to an outlook on how to do business with each other? You know, I can't really pinpoint one specific thing that really turned the tide, but it's just, it just pro progressively got worse over the last 10 years and really culminated in the last two or three years where even after the 2018 season, the Yankees almost pulled their affiliation agreement. And that was before contraction. I can't really say I'm, I'm really surprised. I think that should have been a wake up call, but unfortunately it wasn't. And what it comes down to is that. There's a bunch of little things, and someone who I, I discussed this topic thoroughly has put it a very good way. Staten Island pretty much saved themselves into oblivion. They just kept cutting their budget, kept cutting their budget, kept cutting their budget, and it ultimately led to the situation where the team just can't exist anymore because they don't operate with enough money. Mm. And that was, uh, I think Will's going to go into a little bit more detail yeah. on this in just a second, so I'm going to let him take lead on it, but I, it was my understanding that this is not the original ownership group, that there's another ownership group that took the reins from them at, uh, at some point. No, this is actually the third ownership group. So the original owners were Stan and Josh Getzler, which was a father and son team, 
they had owned the Watertown Indians, and then the Yankees approached them to move to the island. The Yankees bought a percentage of the team, and they moved the team to Staten Island in 1999. Then after 2006, the Yankees bought the team and uh, subsequently brought in Mandalay baseball properties to run the team. Mandalay caused some issues on their own, but they ultimately sold the team in 2011 to the current ownership. Now, that's also to say there was you have multiple owners, but the management of the team has changed about five times as well. Ah, okay. And so I okay. guess I guess on that note, I'll, I'll throw it over to Will to, uh, to go along his line of questioning now. Yeah, so I definitely wanted to get uh, – I really definitely wanted to ask more about the, the – I guess the now former owners of, of the Staten Island Yankees. Uh, I believe they're called the, the Nostalgic – Nostalgic Partners LLC. So, I guess, what do you know about the the that ownership group themselves? Like, how much, how invested do you think they really were into the team? Were, were they? I mean, do they are they from Staten Island? Like, what what was the motivation for them to like keep the business going? And I guess what what eventually led to the demise. Well, none of them were from Staten Island. Um, all of them were, you know, either from Connecticut or Ohio or. Um, I think Illinois as well. So none of them were from San Island. They're all investment people. They're all like investment bankers. Uh, the guy, Glenn, who was um, the most vocal owner, wasn't even the majority owner. The majority owner has actually been pretty silent. Um, I think they came in with the best of intentions, and I don't doubt they came in with the best of intentions. I just think they didn't know what they were doing. Um and brought in people that gave them a lot of bad advice. But when it comes down to it, at some point, they probably just said, I'm not putting any more money into it. And, you know, they've been putting it into about, you know, 750000 to a million dollars a year, give or take, every year um, of their own money to cover expenses. And you know, I'm sure at some point, probably about three or four years ago, they decided, we, we can't do this anymore. It, so they they admitted when they bought the team that they had no exit strategy, and unfortunately, it kind of shows that I, don't, I just don't think they really had an idea of what they were getting into in the baseball business. Right, and and I think that's that's an interesting point because last week on the show we had uh, Frontier League Commissioner Bill Lee uh, on the show, and. A big point, a big talking point about it of his is when he's looking for a new ownership group and, and what, like what does he actually look for? And a big part of it is listen, you have to have, uh, you have to be willing to invest money into the team, and it and it appears that it really didn't happen in this case. So when you said like a, a couple of years, like a few years ago, they decided to stop putting money into the team. So at that point, like say in the 2019 season. All the money that the Staten Island Yankees used were just coming from whatever they made on game day. Is that is that pretty much what you're saying? No, I'm I'm sure they put in more more money because they didn't make they only brought in about 1.8 million in revenue, and I know their their revenue their um, expenses were a little bit higher than that. Uh, you look at utilities alone in the ballpark is about half a million dollars a year, and. and this is not to put all the blame on um, on the owners because, to be honest, their lease with the city was kind of uh, 
outrageous and kind of odd. And, you know, there's just a lot of factors going on. And not to mention the city itself was actually in breach of contract on the lease when they got rid of the parking lots that flanked the stadium because the lease guaranteed a certain number of parking lots for the team. Right. Okay. And so uh, when eventually the Yankees made, made the decision to cut ties uh, with the Staten Island Yankees, obviously when you, there's so many teams specifically today that, that are in the same position uh, you see, you see some of them that are in the new MLB draft league. Some are maybe looking at options uh, as a joining a partner league. Obviously, the Staten Island Yankees made the decision to fold instead of pursuing the the indie ball route or or even joining the MLB Draft League. Why do you think they made the decision to just completely shut it down altogether instead of trying to, or I guess to rephrase to what the to the way they said it in their press release, trying to let others save uh, baseball in Staten Island? Why do you think they made the decision to ultimately fold instead of? Uh, pursuing a maybe a potential spot in the Atlantic League. I think they're just cutting their losses. They, you know, to fill the team in the Atlantic League, you're looking at at least half a million dollars more in expenses for a team that's not drawing and just has no connection to the community whatsoever. Um, you, it's it's a hard pill to swallow. So no one was shocked, and you know I've been talking with people about Atlantic League Baseball in Staten Island for the last, you know, three months. And, you know, we've all expected the same thing to happen, that once it came down, that they'll call it quits. The lawsuit is interesting. Um, they may have a case against the Yankees. I don't know if they have one against really against MLB. What is interesting is who they, they hired. Uh, was it James Quinn is the guy that headed up the NFL Players Association lawsuit against the uh, NFL in terms of free agency and stuff like that. So they got some heavy hitters there. So we'll see what eventually happens there. But as for baseball in Staten Island, it's going to happen. It's going to happen with uh, with new owners, and uh, we'll have to see what the city does. You know, officially they actually have not given up the lease, so there's still a lot more stuff that has to happen. So you're pretty confident that somebody will be willing to to take on the team? Yes. Uh, it won't be the same company, obviously, because everything's yeah. going to be – so start fresh, which is I think is is a welcome because it's going to be needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I guess my last question before I throw it, throw it back to Nick is you mentioned um, they didn't have much of a – they weren't really connected with, with, the, with, the, with the surrounding community in Staten Island, obviously – I mean, you think back to when the Staten Island Yankees started, they, they, they were drawing pretty well just when they originally uh, started, and obviously it rapidly declined uh, recently. So what do you think, it, let's, say, let's assume a new ownership does come in by the team, what do you think they would have to do in order to really galvanize the community to increase attendance and interest in this team to, to make this franchise viable again? I mean, ideally you want at least you want about a year before you start play to really embed yourself into the community. Having people that work in the front office that are actually from Staten Island that know the island and have island connections are active in the community is going to be extremely important. Uh, that's one of the things that the Staten Island did not have. Majority of the people that worked in that front office are from outside of Staten Island, and Staten Island has its own unique 
community that if you're not part of it, you're viewed as an outsider and that ultimately hurts your standing in the community. So you really need to have people that are active in the community to really, really get people to come out. Right. Yeah, that, that, that definitely makes sense. I think you mentioned that they had one of their owners who actually lives in Illinois. Like at the end of the day, that's not going to be able to that, that's not going to be able to sustain in a minor league as a minor league baseball owner where a lot of work is involved. It's not not the most glamorous thing you, you can own. But I, I guess with that, I'll, I'll, I'll throw it back over to Nick to, to continue with it with his questions. Yeah, I'm going to kind of continue along the, the trend of talking about Stan Island as a whole. And because you were mentioning how uh, the lease wasn't really, I don't want to say it's not fair, but it wasn't exactly uh, helping the team out that much. So I do wonder, is this the kind of an issue that a new ownership group is going to have? Are they still going to be battling a less than ideal lease situation is it the kind of issue? Because I know attendance wound up being a problem uh, towards the end of the team's existence. Is there still a general appetite for baseball on the island? As far as appetite for baseball on the island, of course. You know, this is a very it's New York City. Everyone loves baseball here. We got like six different little leagues that play on the island. We got uh, two college baseball teams. We got a college summer team as well on the island. So. There is a lot of baseball, a lot of interest in baseball. What you need here is, you know, to be deeply ingrained in the community. And, you know, you have to, a viewpoint of a lot of businesses and people on St. Island is if you spend money with us, we'll spend money with you. You know, you scratch our back, we scratch your situation. Yeah. And unfortunately, St. Island just never really, since the original owners never really spent money on the island and, the relationship with the community started to really decline after uh, 2007. And along with that, so did the season ticket holder base, which was at one point over a thousand fans. And wow. I believe last year was around 250. Um, so you can see what happens there. Yeah. Um, as far as like the attendance and everything, you know, that goes back into We'll spend money with you and you spend money with us. If you're out in the community and active and engaging with your audience and keeping them interested, they will support you. And you can just take a look at the San Ionke social media. It's sparse and few, far between. You go back years and you could tell like there was really no effort put in because it was done on the cheap. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, you know, you need to be active on social media. You need to have a marketing and communications person that understands who you're reaching and, and talking to and and getting people engaged because short season bowl is a lot different than full season bowl full season bowl you have a lot more games so you can keep them it's easier to keep them engaged short season you needed to actively participate actively keep them engaged which is why you know brooklyn does so well they are very very active and very very engaging with their marketing throughout the entire year, not just during the season. Very true. And I know, uh, I guess the next kind of area I'm going to shift to a bit is just talking about the ballpark itself, because I know uh, the ballpark, uh, its condition fell down, which is to be assumed if you're going to spend, if ownership groups are going to spend less money at the ballpark. So I'm just kind of wondering as of 
the last time you really were there and you saw it and of any players or personnel that you talked to within that organization, what's kind of the current state of that ballpark? Unfortunately, the field is, is really gone and, and destroyed and which is sad because that was literally brand new saw that was put in like a couple of years ago. And, um, with that, you know, you need a new field so that, they want to put in AstroTurf or, mm-hmm. or synthetic turf, not AstroTurf, uh, yeah. but uh, padding needs to be redone. The entire outfield wall needs to be rebuilt uh, from scratch because it's all, all rusted and rotting. Um, electrical needs to be redone. You know, Plumbing needs to be re- redone as well as winterized because they've had a lot of issues with the pipes freezing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole section underneath the stadium that was actually never built out. And okay. which is a significant, I think it's it equals to about a quarter of the, the underneath the underground space. Right. And they could probably put in another clubhouse and, and some player facilities and, as well, if they ever wanted to. But that would be a big expense. Hmm. Uh, the city has set aside five million dollars. You know, that's, you know, that's money that's that was put aside way, way long ago hmm. that the Santa Yankees had plenty of time to spend to renovate the ballpark that they just never did. And what it comes down to, the stadium's probably going to need about, you know, $20 million, $25 million, maybe $30 million in actual renovations because you got to redo all the padding. You got to redo um, the suites need to be completely redone. You know, clubhouse needs to be re- completely redone. Tiling needs to be redone. Um, but as for the bare bones of the stadium, it's still good. It, it's not an old stadium. It's only about almost 20 years old. Okay. So there's a lot that still there that you can work with. And the idea right now is that they're going to reconfigure the, the walls to make it larger so you can have soccer and look and lacrosse and, and rugby there. So that's a big possibility. So if you bring in an Atlantic League team, you have those sports playing regularly. You know, there's going to be a lot of chances to get down to the ballpark, which is going to be needed because you need to make it a community place. You need to make it a place where people just don't think twice and they just go down there because they're in the habit of doing it. Um, the ballparks, you know, in Staten Island is a driving community. Yeah. And vast majority of people drive. Uh, 10, 15 years ago, it was about over two cars per household. Now it's like 1.6 cars per household. Okay. So it's going down. Demographics are changing a little bit, but you still need to have parking. And that's one of the things that really, really hurt the team over the last uh, four or five years, too, is the parking situation because mm-hmm. of construction of the outlet mall and the New York wheel. Uh, now the outlet mall is open, but the New York wheel is still stalled in development. So that's kind of hurt a lot of things. Yeah. They like to blame those developments on a lot of the issues with the ballpark, but unfortunately it has nothing to do with your padding. It has nothing to do with the quality of the clubhouse. Yeah. It has nothing to do with uh, your pipes that bursted before then and, and after, you know, mm. and your, the quality of your outfield wall, that's, that's just all maintenance. And, you know, when it comes down to it, they just neglected a lot of it. And unfortunately, it ultimately bit them in the ass at the end. Yeah, it, it just sounds like oh, an awful lot like this last ownership group, and I suppose the one before it even, where just kind of trying to pass the buck along, going, uh, it's it's not our fault, it's everybody else's fault. And it's, well, you... Well, I will say this, the last ownership group that hmm. uh, was managed by Mandalay, the yeah. stadium was in pristine condition because... Hmm. 
you know, the Yankees obviously were half half yeah, partners involved. with it. And yeah. this is the same group that ran Scranton. And okay. they yeah. um, did a great job with Scranton and set Scranton up for success. This is the group that actually negotiated the deal for Scranton to get the that ballpark and everything. Mm. And, uh, you know, they kept that ballpark in pristine condition. There was nothing wrong in that ballpark while they owned it. And um, unfortunately, you know, the downside of selling to a small ownership group that this is their only team versus an ownership group that owns multiple teams is that you can't share costs across the board. Because there's a lot of costs that people don't think about when it comes to baseball teams like HR costs, IT costs, etc. That if you have multiple teams or most multiple businesses that you could split those costs up and it yeah. lessens lessens the cost on any particular business. Yeah, even just simple things like just buying chalk. I mean, like something as simple as that, where before you can kind of go with a more, a huger, more bulk order, and it's going to be cheaper the more you buy. Now you're buying yeah, for one thing. Buying, uh, buying concessions, buying mm-hmm. merchandise, buying promotion items. The more you spend in one item with one company, the more the cheaper will end up becoming. Yep. And then with merchandise too, being that it all has to be specialized per team. If you're the one providing the merchandise and you're the manufacturer, if you see, if your two options are someone that owns three teams versus someone that owns one, there's more business potential, <clears throat> more business potential with the guy that owns three teams. Cause hey, he could possibly, I could get contracts for three teams versus one team. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's just basic business. Yeah. It, it's a lot of just kind of, Costs beyond the gate is what I like to call it. the average fan wouldn't really notice it until it's not there. And uh, mm-hmm. I I guess one of the things here, I'm not sure if it really is related, but one of the things I just thought they could take better advantage of with the ballpark is you have such a terrific view of the skyline from that ballpark. I just felt like you could use a lot of concerts there. If you were to kind of pull in a lot more, uh, I guess, ancillary kind of events, where concerts were the first thing that came to my mind because I figure you could use the skyline so heavily in drawing people in there and getting larger names in there. But like you were mentioning earlier, you know, lacrosse, soccer, rugby, things like that, other events there, I feel like you could, they could have really made more use of that in the marketing. And I guess just more marketing in general. I mean, I never really even realized until all this started happening where the ballpark really was on Staten Island and what the view was from it. The whole well, you just hit the, hit the nail on the head. You know, they yeah. did not market. They slashed their marketing budgets every time, every chance they get because they just did not see the value in marketing. And unfortunately, that's what ultimately, again, led to their demise. You know, you don't market, you're not going to get people to come. Um, as far as outside events, you know, that is a big thing. You know, when the ballpark first opened, they used to hold concerts and stuff like that. They haven't really done it since because. They just didn't want to put the effort in or, or anything. So a couple of years ago, or last year, actually, the city put out a thing looking for an event promoter for the ballpark uh, outside mm-hmm. of the team. So there, there's a lot of stuff they could have done. Now, on the flip side of that, when you have those events like concerts or wrestling or something else at the ballpark, you got to be mindful of the damage it does to the field if you have mm-hmm. a natural grass surface. If you're switch, switching to synthetic turf like the plan is, uh, there's a lot less damage being done to that to that ground, so you can have a lot more events, and you can switch out events, and you could be the ballpark can be used easier all year round. 
Exactly there. And I, I know a couple minutes ago I heard Atlantic League come up, so I figure uh, might as well go back to our Atlantic League guy, Will, because I've been uh, sorely regretting not bringing him into the conversation here because I just realized how long <laughs> I've been talking for. So I'll go back to Will no, now. It, it, it's all good. Um, so we've talked a lot about, obviously, what's now the past as far as the Staten Island Yankees. And I guess now we could kind of look, look a little bit towards the future. Let's say, so let's say you, you get a good, uh, a good local ownership group, uh, in there. Do you think that, do you think that Staten Island would be, uh, a good Atlantic League fit? And, and if you do, I'd, I'd love to know definitely like why you think, I guess with ballpark upgrades and stuff like that, why you think it would be a, a good fit for, for independent ball? Oh, I 100% think it would be a good fit. You know, um, aside from anything, one of the biggest complaints people had about Santa Island Yankees baseball was that it was not a high quality of play. And the Atlantic League is complete opposite. It's the highest quality of play you can get in, until you get to the big leagues. And that, when you look at the crosstown rival Cyclones, they're only going to be a high A team, and you're going to have an Atlantic League team that's the equivalent of triple A, quadruple A type league. It can be a big plus. Now, if you look at the market, the Staten Island market, you know, you look at the data, it is extremely enticing. You're looking at a population of over uh, 475,000 people on the island. Now, if you compare that to major league cities, like it is more than some major league cities. You know, I think Pittsburgh only had 301,000 people. Cincinnati only has 302,000 people. Same with St. Louis. Cleveland only has 383,000 people. And Kansas City has 491,000 people. It is a large market just on Staten Island alone. And a good 40% of that population is within 15 minutes of that ballpark. Mm -hmm. 60% of that population is within 45 minutes of that ballpark by public transportation. Not even driving, just just public transportation time. So there is a huge, huge audience there that, in addition to all of that, you're looking at the highest average income in New York City out of all the five boroughs, the highest median income out of all the five boroughs. There is a lot, a lot of money and a lot of good things that can happen if you have the right management group and have the right ownership group on this island to manage mm -hmm. a team. Yeah, and I think you did. Uh, you definitely hit the nail on the head as far as uh the the level of the level of play as well. And I know obviously the the three of us are pretty well versed in, in the world of baseball and understand the quality of play. However, uh, do you think it'll have any effect? Like, let's say I, I think we I think we all agree that if they can renovate the ballpark, we're talking two, maybe probably about two years down the road, that Staten Island could potentially be. Um, a new uh, a new Atlantic League market they go into. Do you think it, that it would have any impact of like the old like if you think back to their st to their statement uh, that they were folding? I mean, they called that the, filled their team with subpar players. And like, do you think that would have any impact of like, oh well, you told us they were subpar players, and now you're telling them you're now you're telling us that that it's a it's a great quality of play. Do you think that has that would have any effect? You know, what it comes down to it is, you know, the people that wrote that obviously have no clue about baseball or are purposely lying to try to save face. And they've neglected a whole swash of the communities for so long that most of the island doesn't care 
about them. So they don't care what they say. So that kind of works in the favor where, you know, it's a clean slate. There's nothing subpar about the Atlantic League. And as long as your messaging and everything's intact, you'll break through whatever issues they had with that real quick. And one of the advantages of having the Atlantic League is that you could field a team with more local guys. You know, I'm, I look at it like Jason Marquise wants to pitch in the Olympics next year. Well, if you're in 2021 and you have a team in Staten Island, well, shouldn't Jason Marquis be one of the first people you sign? A local Staten Island guy, major league name, gets his work at, into uh, pitching the Olympics, and there, you know, that's a draw. You know, you got a ton of local people like Zach Granite, guys that are major league names, guys that have played in the majors. There's plenty of guys that were on Staten Island in the past or in Brooklyn in the past that are star Atlantic League players and can fill teams and, and put in a good product on the field. Now, you start fielding good teams, that whole subpar thing is going to go away real quick. Mm-hmm. And, and it's funny it's funny you mentioned as far as like uh, bringing in guys who are either from like either from Staten Island, uh, they maybe played there at one point. If, if you want to look at a, a team in the New York area who, who does that, who really markets their team like that and brings in guys uh, like that and really does a good job playing their market, they're already in the Atlantic League, that being the Long Island Ducks, bringing in like countless former, former Mets players and bringing in Met legends. Of course, Wally Backman being the manager now, Bud Harrelson as well being uh, so, so ingrained with, with that organization. I, I think. That, that's a really good point in the sense of that if you bring it in some maybe guys guys who have had time uh, w- with the New York Yankees in the past that can really um, that can really up, uh, up the team as far as far as how the fans look at it. So yeah, I, I will say I, I will I will say Rob, I was I was not as as listeners to the show uh, very well know I was not a huge proponent of Atlantic League and Staten Island. I didn't think it was a it was a very good fit, but I guess uh, from this conversation, I do I do see that there's definitely potential there. That if you, th- I guess the one line that you said that really kind of that really kind of spoke to me was uh, how people, because obviously I don't live in Staten Island, but how people think, oh well, if you if you're not really going to be there for us, then then how are you expecting us to be there for you? So I really do think that uh, if you can get a, an ownership group that actually really cares about uh, Staten Island and the surrounding community that 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 it could work. I, I will say you you have you have uh, gone a long way into into, cha- into changing my mind on this. If you can get the right ownership group in there, yeah. I mean, a lot of people look at that attendance and just try to make decisions based on that. But there's so many other small factors that have gone into everything that's happened over the years. So like you look, I actually did a pretty detailed ticket analysis of all the teams in the area: Atlantic League, Minor League Baseball, etc. And Santa Island Yankees had the most expensive ticket out of any team and by a large margin. They had $18 tickets compared to $16 or $15 tickets. And you look at the Atlantic League, you know, they really hovered around that $15 mark, you know, giving that big bang for the buck and, and everything you need there. You know, San Island, unfortunately, just priced themselves out. You know, this is New York City. You have a lot of competition. You got to keep your 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 price low 
as well as provide a good value. And unfortunately, over the last few years, they just did no did not provide a good value. Now, I've had the opportunity, and I'm a marketing person by trade. You know, that's my day job is in marketing and communications. And I ran a survey on uh, Staten Island about professional baseball. And, you know, <laughs> quite interesting. One of the big things about what fans want to see were competitive baseball. They didn't care what brand it was or where they're from. They just want a competitive team. They wanted creative promotions. They wanted community involvement. Those are the biggest three things. You know, they wanted more fan interaction. They wanted people to be engaged in the games. They wanted to be engaged outside of the stadium as well. Cheaper tickets. And in addition to that, and quite funny, the sixth thing on the list, and that was actually in order how they appeared on the list. The sixth thing on the list from out, from fans outside was better management. And, uh, and the seventh thing was cleaner stadiums. But, that goes along with you. Know, you have a team that wants to put in the money and want to put in the work. It can be successful. We saw it in the early days. We saw it happen. You know, you can't just rely on the Yankees name, which I think they just, they took the Yankees for granted. I know that for a fact, you know, I, I talk with players. I talk with coaches. They just did not feel welcome. There was a, an us versus them attitude in that front office that unfortunately comes from the top. And, they didn't care about the Yankees, so the Yankees ultimately left. And there's no one to blame but themselves for that. And mm. you could claim all this stuff in contracts and emails and all this, uh, everything, but when it comes down to it, if you're not going to put in the effort to keep the team and make the team happy, why should they keep the effort to keep the team there? You know, no matter what, they got to put the players first. You know, players were literally injured because of the negligence in the stadium and what happens is you need to really take a look and you know what have you done and and take ownership of it a new group coming in and you know taking a different course and putting a better stadium and putting the effort in is going to be a huge huge boom you like i said the ideal time frame is you have a, a year to build it up and get out in the community and with that you know, hopefully maybe 2022. Um, I won't rule out 2021 because no one has any idea what's going to happen in 2021 um, as far as baseball in general, you know, but, you know, ideally you want that, that gap year to really build up a relationship with the community. Right. And I think that's going to be the biggest, biggest thing to keep a team on the island. Like I said before, it has a population that rivals major league cities. It has... Mm -hmm the richest population in New York city. So how are you not successful? Yeah. Yeah. So the I, ultimate I, I, irony is, is I actually, I did the numbers based on reported attendance because I don't have the actual attendance for Brooklyn, but on reported attendance, Staten Island actually draws a larger percentage of the borough population than Brooklyn does. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Even with the, the down attendance. Those are all, Definitely good points, and I think uh, I think I'll I'll throw it back to Nick. But I I think yeah I, I think with with a new ownership group and and hopefully there is some there is a group that that's willing to take on because obviously it's not an easy project, uh but by, by any stretch there there's a lot of stuff. I know you mentioned the thirty million dollars probably has to put in to make the stadium uh, viable again. But yeah, I, I guess with that I'll, I'll I'll throw it back to Nick. 
Yeah, and so I only have a couple of questions left, and you've been generous with your time, and I know we're we're doing this uh, a little bit later in the night now, but uh, there are about three questions I really kind of were thinking about that I got left, and the first one really is, do you think it's kind of an Atlantic League or bus-type scenario on the island, or is it something where, let's say, the Frontier League came and they offered them a spot in there because, you know, they have a sizable footprint in the area. They have three teams in the tri-state as it is, and they're obviously interested in expanding that. I mean, when we talked to Bill Lee, he definitely said we want to fill in the gaps, and if you could get even closer and be part of the New York City market on top of what you have now, stand out and make sense. So would the Frontier League be something that you could see working on Staten Island, or is it just, it has to be the Atlantic League? You know, I, I can't talk to him. I can't talk really about that because I don't know what the Frontier League is thinking because no matter what, you have to bring in an owner. Yeah, You're not going to get the current owners to change their mind. So you're going to have to bring in an owner. So if they're going to put in the work to find an owner, it's possible. Um you know, obviously, quality of player rise. Frontier League is not as high a quality play uh, as the Atlantic League, which is really the premier independent league or partner league or whatever you want to yeah. call them nowadays. Um, I wouldn't say it's Atlantic League or bust, but I do know it is um, pretty the- much the front runner is the Atlantic League. Okay, so the Atlantic League point. is preferred, but the door is still open if the Frontier League is able to get an ownership group and kind of get their ducks in a row and. I don't want to say beat the Atlantic League to it, but if they're able to get everything in order and they present a good package, they could still uh, they could still make it work. It's more or less about who the owner is and what their plans are than the league itself. Then, yeah, and I want to give credit where credit's due. The Yankees have been actively in working to try to put the Atlantic League on the island, so it's not like they're they're leaving Staten Island Highland dry. They've actually have been working on this for quite a while. Okay. Yeah, because I know I saw in the statement they said, look, you, we're not going to keep you, but we have a place for you to go if you want it. And uh, clearly the current ownership group said, no, nah, we want to cut our losses here and see if we can't uh, get a little bit more out of you in court. Yeah, I mean, uh, when it comes down to it, you know, they were offered MLB and the Yankees were going to pay the fee for them to join the Atlantic League and everything. So... They turned that down. I don't know what's going to happen next. Um, who knows? I'm sure MLB and the Yankees would really want them to have a team and not have that stadium sit empty, considering how active they were in actually building that stadium and put, selecting that location and everything. So there's going to be a lot of stuff in play in terms of politics and, and publicity and all of that stuff. Mm. Um, but I think... Atlantic League to Staten Island is a lot closer than many, many people might think. Okay. And then uh, I guess I'm going to wrap up the, the possibility of a new uh, team taking their place with uh, the thing that I suppose most people know of Staten Island Yankees from or Staten Island baseball from, which is uh, their occasional name change to being called the, the Pizza Rats. So I guess is that a possibility for a long-term name solution? Because I know there was some, I guess, controversy about that, although I really don't see where it exists. So, Well, let's put it this way. What is the Pizza Rat from? Honestly, I don't know all the history behind it. I just know that they got cool. Well, it's the New York subway, isn't it? Yes. Ah. There's no subway on Staten Island. Ah, okay, so it doesn't really fit. 
<laughs> it had nothing to do with Staten Island. It's just <laughs> a, another in a long line of examples of just them not knowing their market. Ah, so it's one of those things where for people like me that have no idea about Staten Island, we love it. But the people that are actually going to be funding this team with their uh, with their dollars, they they don't uh, have any attachment to it, and if anything, are, are not a fan of it. Yeah, and you also got. The other thing is that the current owners own the name, they own the rights to the name uh, and all that stuff. So, yeah, so that's that's uh, the more prudent. When it reason. comes down to it, when it comes down to it, one, it has nothing to do with Sen Island. Yeah. Two, it's it's just emblematic of the problem we see in these minor league sports teams names and that the, these names are, are more for shock and publicity mm. than for long term. And that it's one of the biggest problems, and it's been noted. You know, Pat O'Connor has talked about it in the past. The former minor league baseball president, you know, how we got to rein in these names because they're just getting more and more outrageous. And the reason they're getting more and more outrageous is because they're trying to get free publicity. Yeah, and eventually and they the lose names actually don't have any staying power. They're not long-term names. They're they're designed to work for five to ten years, and then you change the name again so they could make more money. Yeah, you know, there, there is no long-term thinking when it comes to those names. Like, if you look at the Pizza Rat, it was a meme that was yeah. at that point already a year or two old. That really needed to, for that to be a long-term possibility, it really it wasn't going to happen. And the other names weren't even that good either. You know, yeah. I personally, for what it became, which was a weekly promotion. Not something that is a full-time team name. I had really no problem with it because the logos did come out good. Yeah. But it's definitely not good enough to be a full-time team name. You want something when you have a team. You want a name that if you think 40, 50, 100 years down the line, that name will stick and still work and represent your community. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the Pizza Rats name had nothing to do with the community at all. If anything, it was a slap to the community because we don't have a subway on the island. And that is a big, big point of uh, contention with the residents. Now, I will say this, you know, vast majority, about 98% of the conversations online about the name were positive. Aside from that, there seems to be a bit more of a, a generation gap. Older yeah. you are, you tend to be more negative towards it. Younger you are, tend to be more positive towards it. So there's a lot of dynamics in play with that name. But ultimately, like I said, it just does not represent the community. It's just not a good name. Politicians hated it. The Yankees hated it. Everyone um, that was involved really just missed the boat because they just completely – it was a – a snub to the community because you're referencing something that one did not happen here and two something that is is a source of contention is you know like i said we just don't have a subway and, and it's yeah. something people have been trying to fight for for over 100 years mm. and it just was a bad name to pick uh, overall right. but uh, merchandise wise it was a, a success so I guess then on that note, uh, this is really my last question that I have. So I always like to kind of leave it off on a positive note for the last question I have here. They're no longer independent. They are affiliated now and they are a Yankee affiliate. And I know a lot of our fans are Yankee fans and more pertinently Somerset fans. So I was just curious if there was any kind of, I guess, five names out there that you could expect to see if you're a Patriot fan uh, at TD Bank Ballpark this year. Ooh, good question. And I was actually talking with some of my uh, 
writers, because actually one of my writers is going to put a, a list together of 10 players that will most likely play in Somerset in 2021. And uh, top of that list, you know, you got guys like Luis Heal mm-hmm. and Luis Medina, two big fire thrower pitchers, guys that can regularly get it up to 100 miles an hour. They're both on the 40-man roster, so there's some uh, MLB considerations there. Mm-hmm. Uh, guys like Frank German that are coming up and a few others that you know, I can't get into right now, yeah. but, you know, keep an eye out. We will have an article about 10 players that will be playing in Somerset at some point in 2021. And I think that's going to be a great, great relationship for the Yankees. I've heard nothing but good things about the Somerset ownership. My interactions with the Somerset front office already have been extremely positive and I'm really looking forward. I definitely plan to go out to uh, games. It's a lot closer than Trenton. It's only about, you know, 30 to 45 minutes from me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm looking forward to actually catching some games there. Yeah, no, the Califers are, they're, they're great as an ownership group there. And that whole organization is really top of the line. Like, I'm obviously sad to lose them for independent ball because of what they've meant to independent baseball over their existence. But uh, I couldn't be happy for the people involved in it. And uh, I guess on that note, uh, Will, if you had anything else left to ask, uh, I guess I'll turn it over to you for that. Uh, no, I, I think, I think I got, I think I got all my questions answered. All right, then. So uh, with that note, I always like to give the guests uh, a couple minutes at the very end to plug anything they want to plug or uh, promote their social media or if they want to circle back to a topic that they may want to add on to or clarify or if there's something we didn't get to that you want to discuss. Uh, now's the time to uh, do any of that. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to talk with you guys about the market and everything. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what the future of baseball on Staten Island is there's just go there. Hopefully will be some good news soon. Uh, we'll see what happens in the next uh, few weeks or months, but I look forward to it and maybe we'll guys will have a, another chance to chat and uh, follow, follow me on Twitter and Instagram. My handle is R Pimpsner P I M P S N E R. And then follow pinstripe prospects on Twitter and Instagram at pinstripe pros. You know, we cover the Yankees farm system from top to bottom. And selfishly, I will say this, the contraction actually makes it a lot easier for us to do that. But uh, unfortunately, I, I wish we still had short season and everything. But uh, aside from that, it's uh, looking to be like an interesting 2021. Absolutely. It's going to be very interesting going forward. And when we get some more clarity as to what's going to happen with Stanton Island, we'd be happy to have you back on to discuss that and everything that goes along with it. So uh, thank you for taking the time to do this today. We appreciate it. Anytime. Happy to do it. Again, we thank Rob for coming on the show. We do appreciate it. And when we have more movement on the Staten Island front, whether that be an ownership group coming in or an official team announcement, whatever it may be, we will definitely uh, look to have him back onto the show. Uh, we did enjoy having him on a lot. And I guess we could start at the beginning of the interview and kind of work our way through here. And uh, it really does appear, at least one of the main things I was drawing from, not just the beginning, but the whole thing, was... The severe issues with leadership up front, starting with that ownership group, you know, it, it seemed like they really were in over their heads, at least from obviously going off of uh, what we just learned over the last 45 or so minutes. Uh, they were really 
they never, at least this particular ownership group, was never really interested in being involved in Staten Island. They were just really interested in owning a baseball club, and it seems like uh, it finally came back to bite them. Agreed. I think that more than anything, this shows how important in minor league baseball and independent league baseball. I think they're 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 pretty similar in this sense, but it's obviously not the most lucrative, uh, not the most lucrative business that somebody could own. Specifically, uh, somebody who has quite uh, some money to throw around. It's not the most lucrative thing to own, uh, business to own, and I think that it really shows how important a local ownership group that actually cares about the community. It shows how important that is to the success of any minor or, uh, or independently franchise or else you don't, you don't have a chance. You don't have a chance. And I think we saw it in, in, in similar ways with new Britain. Cause I remember um, that was owned, the new Britain bees were originally, uh, I believe owned Frank Bolton, and of course Frank Bolton's done amazing things with the Long Island Ducks. However, there's no doubt that there was the best of intentions there, in the sense that I believe it was Frank Bolton's intention to at least get the bees off the ground and then transfer it to a uh, to a local ownership group, something he's offered to do in the past as well. And when that didn't happen and things weren't going well, there wasn't really much to help save the bees. And I think that that's what you what you really saw in the case of Staten Island as well. I mean, I'm sorry, but at the end of the day, when you're when one of your owners is an investment banker from Illinois who lives in Illinois, you, who it just seems like a bunch of guys got together who have a lot of money and say, "Hey, what, would you like? We should we should own a baseball team. Yeah, that'll be so much fun." And then they didn't realize. All, all the all the stuff that comes with it and so, so many of the important things that comes with it and also like stadium upkeep and stuff like that it, it's not it's not as glamorous as as people as people believe and if you're not ready for it you, you could put yourself in a world of trouble which is exactly what we saw here yeah I do you see that you need to know the area that you're going about. And the one thing that kept coming back to my mind is it seems like in Staten Island, more so than elsewhere, is an extremely insular community. It's a lot of, we want people like us that know us, that know our community, that know our businesses, that are actively helping us to be involved before we begin to start to help you out. It seems like they want that uh, or they need that. Where other areas, maybe it's not as much of a necessity. I mean, Sioux Falls does fine, and they have a lot of investment coming in from out of town. But obviously, always being local, like you're saying, uh, is the best way of going about it here. But with Staten Island in particular, they have a lot of pride in being from Staten Island. So you need people from Staten Island running the show. And there's no real way around that, uh, no matter what way you slice that. Yeah, great. I think that when you say that they're very proud of being from Staten Island, that's true. And they also realize that people who are not from Staten Island are not the uh, most fond of people that are from Staten Island. Therefore, it is very important to have somebody from Staten Island, uh, or at least someone who lives in Staten Island and is invested in the community there running the show. Exactly. And uh, kind of moving to some of the next things I was, uh, I was kind of getting towards was, this idea of the stadium 
having good bones, so to speak, about it when I was kind of asking, oh, you know, what's the condition of the ballpark? And when you need to put 20 to 30 million in reno work and the city's only going to chip in about five, uh, it's going to certainly slim down your pool of suitors. So that's something is, that is something of concern to me rather. And that you're going to need to find someone that's going to be willing to kind of invest a lot of money in short order. I mean, there's some things that you can kind of wait on, you know, a lot more cosmetic things you can wait on, but things like a field, the outfield wall, I know the pipes were something that were an issue. Those are all things that need to get done, you know, before a team can take place. You can't just leave pipes that bust every other year and and a turf that's, you know, injuring players and a wall that's duct taped together out there. So I, I do wonder if there is someone on Staten Island or that, you know, relates to the general New York market, that's going to be willing to say, oh, yeah, I'll throw 15 to $25 million into this ballpark just to get it up to uh, up to code. And then from there, I'll uh, invest even more money into running the team. Uh, unless you're going to try and get that money from the city of New York, which I'm not sure how willing they're going to be to put mm-hmm. money into a ballpark without a team ready to go in there. And the interesting part of, of, of the interview is that, that Rob definitely seemed confident that somebody would be willing, willing to, to take on, uh, take on all the challenges that come with buying the Staten Island Yankees. Obviously, they would change their name, yeah. but, but, but buying that franchise at this point, given all the, all the problems. And, and you're right when you say that there's, there's, a couple there's a couple issues like the outfield wall the wanting to put in artificial turf uh and and working on the pipes and stuff like that and even parking as well because i know uh the park at least the the few times i've been there how how the parking works is essentially there is no parking lot for 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 the for the ballpark itself there's like a parking garage like next door and you and it's like the same parking garage as like the the staten island ferry and so they like share the parking lot, but you go like you go you go into the parking garage, then you like walk out, like walk across like this like little makeshift bridge, then you walk down the down like a block, and then you're the, at the stadium. So it's definitely not. Uh, it's definitely he he. Rob mentioned the, the lack of parking being an issue there too. I think that's something that's that's definitely going to have to change if you want people. To go to, to go to the game because public public transportation is not exactly it, it's not like a uh, for example like a New York Yankees game where yeah. a lot of people are taking the train or or even a Mets game where a lot of people are taking the train to the game and and of course like I mean you look at Madison Square Garden I mean that's literally the entire that's that's pretty much like that's like ninety percent of it yeah. uh, that you're that you're that you're taking the train well, I mean, into the game to go to a train station yeah I know exactly yeah. it's pretty convenient actually yeah. but uh, it really shows that you got to know your market and and unfortunately the past ownership group didn't and when they just you know like just share a parking garage next door that and you the harder you make it for people to come see you they're not going to put in the extra effort to co-watch a new york penn league team and listen i i enjoy, i've enjoyed my time go when i when i go to staten island i mean i love baseball games in general I, it's not like i i go to a stadium like oh this is terrible look at the outfield wall i now my night's ruined uh, but but unfortunately 
there there are a lot of hurdles. He mentioned the ticket prices as well that were definitely more expensive. For example, the nicest minor league ballpark I think I've ever been to is Lehigh Valley mm. for the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs out out in Allentown, PA. It's just an awesome ballpark. They have the cheapest minor league tickets of any te- of any team that that I've, that and I've, of any team that I've gone to. I believe the tickets are like eleven bucks. Like it, it and it shows in their attendance, like that they're averaging like eight nine thousand fans a night. And I think that th- there's just a lot of issues wrapped up into one. And I, I think it's doable, but you're gonna have to find an owner who's willing to take a loss early on and willing to put money in a, a, a lot of money into revamping it. However, if that were to happen, I, I do think it could work. I, I think the market is there. Uh, you mentioned that the Rob mentioned that there is a lot of money. In, in Staten Island, and it, it could potentially work, and and I agree. But you, you do need to find that owner, and that's much easier said than done. Exactly. And when you're talking about like ticket price, and when they say eighteen dollars, the thing that comes to my mind is, I know for a fact you could get tickets to a Met game for eighteen themselves. I mean, and if you're yeah. thinking about it like this, if you'd rather pay eighteen dollars to go to a Met game where you could probably sit out in the outfield section there, I mean it's not a terrible seat by any means you got a great view you have uh obviously a more expensive experience there but you're also seeing a major league game versus the a high a ball or low a ball game i mean even still like i understand why the ticket prices are higher if you need to you know if you're going to put less money in then you need to make more money at the gate to reinvest but even still i think you mentioned that you're like oh so they weren't they were just investing the money that they they made at at game days or at the gate and he said no they put a little bit more into that but not not that much more because the gate didn't cover everything and it kind of goes back to that whole you're going to need to be willing to eat a loss and i remember he said uh, rob said that you know ideally you'd have one to four years of runway and i just don't see how you could give them any more than two years of runway like yeah i know having four years it's like great but at the same time too i feel like if you keep saying it's coming in four years it's coming in four years it's coming in three years it's coming in three years it's coming in two years at a certain point the locals just are like yeah they've, they've said it's been coming for forever exactly I mean, it's not gonna actually ever happen here i mean to put it in perspective you could graduate from high school and then be nearly done with your senior year of college in that four-year block to show just as a passage of time type of thing so you you i think one to two years is really your maximum there but then Agreed. If you're gonna I, go, I, yeah go I ahead i think it, it's gonna have to be 2022 or it's probably not happening exactly and that and also goes back to especially now you have a pandemic that hit that a lot of the wealthier folk probably had their portfolio hit harder the kind of people that are going to be buying a baseball team like this and investing money into fixing up that ballpark, assuming the city's not going to go for dumping too much money. And even if you want to say it costs 20 million, the city puts in 10 million, including the five that they have set aside. That still leaves you with an investor group that needs to find 10 million to fix everything else. And then they have to sit dormant for two years, just eating losses as they hire staff and people associated with the team to, you know, bring in and build up a club. If there's a lot that needs to get done, and uh, I do hope something gets done because I will say I, I do agree with you. My viewpoint on uh, Staten Island has changed a bit. I think you just need a lot of things to go right to help them. 
before we move off of it entirely, I will say one thing here. If they do get a team, we do know they will not be called the Pizza Rats. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't expecting that answer when I asked that question. I was expecting kind of maybe a jovial, oh, no, uh, no, there was a, some people took offense to that. It, or they just didn't feel like they identify with the name, but uh, that that was the extent of the answer. I wasn't expecting to uh, to get uh, a very long response about how uh, the name just was like a slap in the face to Staten Islanders. I, I was not expecting that answer uh, at all. Yeah, but yeah, I, I wasn't either. He was definitely fired up about um, the pizza rats. But I, I wanted to go back to one thing about okay. Staten Island before we move on mm. is the ticket prices. It just, it just came to my mind. I remembered cause I have mentioned before I've, I went to the 2019 New York Penn league all-star game yeah. in, uh, in Staten Island. I had a great time. However, there was only 2,200 fans there. And I, I, I was wondering as to why. And then I remembered when I bought the tickets, the tickets were $20 each 20 a piece for that. 20 a piece and, and listen it's an all-star and I'm, I'm sure their justification was look it's an all-star game I'm like yeah but it is an all-star game and there is high quality talent however we are talking about a short season a ball league yeah like really come on guys like 20 dollars church 20 yeah you, you can't charge 20 and that's why there was like 2200 fans like there's there's more like every like dale like pretty much every night in the atlantic league you're gonna have a big a bigger uh, a bigger crowd than that so you know it, it, there are a lot of problems and i i hope they figure it out I, I really do yeah like just to put that in perspective i remember seeing like for at least one somerset game where like i walked to the box office to get tickets from like i kind of pointed at pointed out to the, like the uh, giant sign that's got all the prices on it and i went to my friends like yo you could get a ticket in a suite for 25 dollars according to the sign like if you could do that, and I'm not sure if that's an actual thing, or if anyone's actually ever been like, "Yeah, give me two tickets to the suite, to one of the suites up there," and I assume you don't get the whole experience. I assume you just get to sit up in the suite. And be yeah, like in there. yeah, I, it's not. Yeah, I, but but still, no, the point remains. As far, yeah, I know. As far as the suite in Somerset, they even have like on the, on the mobile app with reward points. I I I have to assume this probably stays. As far as the, even though they're transitioning to to a Yankee affiliate, obviously, but when they when when we were when Somerset was in the Atlantic League, what for like I don't know like three hundred points or something like that, you could upgrade your ticket to to a suite for for the night. Yeah, which which was to be honest with you, it, it was actually pretty nice because it was and it was all like one suite would be like reserved for. The uh, like you wouldn't get like food or anything. Like, yeah. But you would have like you would have like the seat and you would have like the air conditioning and that was always the best for like day specific. I, I will say the best the best time to do that was the was the school camp days. The one oh. with the games at eleven a.m. Uh, that was a must. You, you could not sit like um, like in the the normal crowd at eleven a.m. in in eleven a.m. in July with like with like five six different camps running around it, it was a necessity you had to be in a suite that day not to mention the seats get hot as hell because they're just sitting directly in the sun yeah so, so you go to sit down you, you you burn your ass really it's the only way to describe it so that is true like the point that's still the thing though if it's like a hot humid night 25 dollars to where you could just be in the air conditioning totally worth it or totally. even like a firework night it'd probably be worth it 
I'd agree, yeah. Like that still though. The the whole point that remains is for twenty five dollars you could have an air conditioned suite and still be able to kind of mingle around the rest of the park. Meanwhile, over in Stanton Island to see, quite frankly, a le- a lower level of ball. Much you, lower. Yeah, you pay eighteen dollars to get in. Like yeah, for the seven dollar difference, like it's very clear what wins out. Yeah, it's not gonna work. Exactly, but uh, regardless, I think uh, we've said a lot about uh, Staten Island, and we probably won't mention them again for at least a month until we find out one way or the other what's being added in the Atlantic League. And I guess with that, again, we do thank Raf for coming on the program. Uh, be sure to check out his stuff at uh, Pinstripe Prospects, and be sure to give him a follow at rpimsner, uh, P-I-M-P-S-N-E-R, on uh, both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, the links to... All his stuff, the, his website and uh, his social media will be in the uh, show notes on our website. So uh, be sure to check that out, too. And with that said, we will move on to really, I guess, the big course of the week. The thing that's going to eat up most of this show, in addition to the interview and the associating uh, discussion, is the MILB update. But should actually be our last MILB update, I suppose you could say, because we do have our official list. It came out on Wednesday. And uh, we have the full affiliate list. We know the teams are going to be left out in the cold. We could run through all of them, but let's be honest. We know what the case is in the Pioneer League. We know what the case is in the Appalachian League, and that covers about half of them. And uh, some of the markets, you just look at them outright and you go, they're not getting an indie ball team, so they really just don't uh, matter to us. But there are certainly some markets that uh, are interesting to look at. There's certainly some markets that could host an independent league team and there's some markets that uh, i'm kind of surprised were saved from the axe so uh, we could just kind of run from there i don't know what way to really start or begin this so uh, i guess i will defer to you and yeah what i'll what i'll start with i guess because obviously we're not going to run through the whole list Hmm. however i think the, the, the the only important list i really think uh, as far as the 11 full-season affiliate teams that did not receive invites, of course, they're, they're known as invites for now because they haven't signed uh, their official their official agreement yet. It, it's just um, an invite at this point, of course, but no team's going to decline the invite. Like That's just not happening. So, um, so the only two AA teams that did not receive invites are the Jackson Generals and uh, the Trenton Thunder. We obviously know what, what's going to happen with the Trenton Thunder, the Jackson Generals. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, there's some there's some rumors that the American Association could be possible. I don't know about that, but we will see. Uh, as far as IA, uh, you have two teams in the Florida State League, the Charlotte Stone Crabs, a former Rays affiliate. Their affiliate is now the Charleston River Dogs, uh, who is the old Yankees affiliate. And uh, also the Florida Fire Frogs, the former Braves affiliate. Also the Frederick Keys, which I, I've clamored for long, a long, long time to please come to the Atlantic League. They were not invited to be still be an Orioles affiliate. However, they unfortunately joined the uh, stellar MLB Draft League, and that makes me very sad. Uh, so Frederick Keys will not be an Atlantic League team in 2021. And like I mentioned, that makes me very sad. But uh, so, And then as far as the uh, low A ball, you have the Burlington Bees of the Midwest League, the Clinton Lumber Kings of the Midwest League, the Hagerstown Suns of, uh, down in Maryland in the South Atlantic League, uh, the Lexington Legends in the South Atlantic League, 
please just go to the Frontier League. It makes so much sense, Lexington. Like, please. It, it, it would be absolutely perfect. Uh, then the Kane County Cougars of the Midwest League and the West Virginia Power of the South Atlantic League. So, And, and then there's also the New York Penn League teams. I mean, I believe the teams that are not, uh, whoever is not in the MLB Draft League. And I, I think the only teams in the New York Penn League that, got invites to move up to, to high A. I think the only teams that did get those invites were just Hudson Valley, Aberdeen and Brooklyn. And so the other ones, and before, before I get, I do want to bring in Nick uh, on this before I get into the Atlantic league stuff and potential targets for the Atlantic league. But out of those uh, affiliates, those 11 full season affiliates that didn't make the cut that I listed, do, do any, uh, do any uh, come to mind as far as a potential before we get the Atlantic League stuff? The uh, like an American Association or Frontier League candidate? Jackson, I never really understood why they would go to the American Association. To be quite honest, like they're in Tennessee, so I suppose they're still within range of it. But that whole thing just got started because I believe it was the Winnipeg media director Mark Schuster. I believe it was posted a thing going well if we add. Kane County, Burlington, Jackson, and then there was one other one, I think it was Lexington, then this is what the distances would be travel-wise among them. And I just, I've seen more a Tennessee team, more in like the, to be quite honest, the Atlantic League's planning because they do want to hit that Southern market. And Tennessee certainly is Southern. Tennessee, I suppose you could group in with the two uh, North Carolina teams. And if you were to pick up one more that was a little further south, you can make it work. If not, you could put Maryland with uh, Tennessee and the two North Carolinas. And while it's not ideal travel-wise, it's not terrible either. And then you could kind of make do with the rest of the top U2 Pennsylvania teams and then Long Island and then a mystery team, I suppose you would add in there as well. I will say I look at all of the teams and I do have a little bit of a list. Some of them are short season teams, but teams like Lowell, I really think would do well in independent ball. Lexington, like you said, Lexington's a Frontier League team. Uh, they already have a working relationship with Florence. It makes all too much sense for them to, you know, make the jump and go over there. Plus, you would help even out the numbers, assuming Ottawa's going to be tossed into the uh, Can-Am division as opposed to the uh, Frontier division. So you put right. you put a nice natural rival for Florence there. It'll work out swimmingly there. Uh, a team like Norwich, Connecticut, I think, uh, or an area like that deserves it. Kane County, I'm not sure if that's an American Association market or a Frontier League market. Something about it screams Frontier, though. I don't know what it is, but it just it feels that way to me. And then both <laughs> Iowa teams, uh, they both seem more in line with uh, the American Association, both Burlington and Clinton. They just seem to make a lot of sense for, for that purpose, from at least my perspective, because you already do have one Iowa team in the association in Sioux City. Uh, so uh, for me, those are like the ones that really do jump out. And obviously we know uh, a short eight or two short days, uh, Tri-City and Vermont are both looking to go into indie ball or partnership ball. Whoever you talk to, the term changes really. But I know Vermont's, it's been kind of an open secret among everybody. Vermont's probably going to the Frontier League as that nice kind of wedge gap. Like we said, uh, or like Billy had said, when we talked to them, they want to kind of start to close the gaps in between their teams and put one or two in there. So Tri-City is certainly one that I'm sure we're about to talk about as far as Atlantic League possibles. 
But yeah. uh, I think there's going to be some competition <clears throat> for them personally. Tri-City, uh, and for those who don't know, that's in upstate New York. It's near Albany and, and Albany, Troy, that area for anybody who's familiar. But Albany is probably what people know. It's, it's, it's right near there. I really do think Tri-City could work. Uh, the stadium is not new. I believe it's built in 2002. But uh, I, I, and there, there is a really good fan base there. I know this past year, uh, as an Astros affiliate, they, they were, I believe, second or third in attendance at thir- at 3,800 fans a night. That's definitely that could definitely work. And I think that, um, I think that a team that's going from uh, from short season ball to the Atlantic League, I, I, I don't think it'll drop that much because it'll be easier to sell the people of that area on hey the 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 quality of play is increasing if you remember new britain when they made a similar move they used to be a double a team people who follow the atlantic league understand that atlantic league's a double a triple a caliber league that's a harder sell to fans uh to say hey it's the quality of play isn't changing, but for a team that is a short season ball, I think that you would have still a former short season a ball team. I think you would still have uh, similar similar attendance numbers, maybe a, st- a little bit of a drop. I think a, thir- a like a fans of like thirty five hundred a night. I don't think that's unrealistic, which puts you right in line with a York or a Lancaster, uh, right in the middle of the pack of attendance in the Atlantic League. So I think I think bringing in a team like Tri City could definitely work. I think expanding into that um, kind of upstate New York market could definitely work. I know it definitely is. You do have to put more money into it just because of the higher salary cap. It's a you'd have to pay more your your players more than you do in the Frontier League, uh, which is I, I believe probably what you were referencing as far as them having competition. Yeah, uh, and and I agree with you when you and as far as Lowell, I, I agree also. I think that could be a good market as well. There's clearly an appetite for baseball up there. I believe their attendance is around three thousand a night as well. They're losing an affiliation with the Red Sox, obviously isn't great, but I still think they could definitely survives an Atlantic League team. Uh, but before I throw it back to you, I, I do the thing that's interesting to me is when Rick White was saying uh, in his Facebook Live appearance with Mark Schwartz uh, of the Somerset Patriots, he said, hey, we're looking for for 10, maybe 12 teams. I don't see how that's a realistic option right now. I, I don't, especially with Frederick going to the MLB Draft League, I really do think that they can get to eight for next year. I don't see how 10 or 12 is realistic at this point. Yeah, unless they have two other markets there hidden. I know a while back, about over a year now, uh, they were talking about going to maybe Alabama, but even that, I remember that fell through. So even if you want to say, that you could find two other southern markets. I just don't know where you're going to find them. That That's the yeah. issue I have because you're not putting a team in Florida. We saw with the Florida State League that that's not going to work out. And even with a higher quality of play, you're still going to see a bit of a drop in attendance. And I mean, none of those teams can afford a drop in attendance. Most of them are hovering either at or below a thousand fans a game. And that's yeah. just not profitable. You, there's no way that team can survive. In addition to you're going to be battling weather. More so than you're already battling weather. Florida weather is notoriously unpredictable. So one day it could be 91 humid and directly with the sun beating down on you. And then that same day, 
it could totally flip and you can have a rainstorm and then it could be fine and your field's still trash so you can't play on it there's only so much you could do to you know fix a field in an hour and a half but it's still you're not going to florida there was nothing really in georgia that opened up and unless you're fighting off one of these summer collegiate teams which i guess there's an argument to be had that if you're not part of this one baseball development pipeline from Major League Baseball, you're going to be severely hurt by this. Right. Although I still think leagues like the Cape Cod League will be fine. I think the Northwoods League will be fine. Uh, the Coastal Plain League, I think, is a little bit more touch and go. I think they may really be the one of the three kind of more well-known uh summer college ball leagues that are going to be hurt by it but i still think that they'll carve out a niche for themselves so i i just don't see markets for you so i agree with you there uh, i will say i think there's probably one or two markets that we're not even really considering that are probably under heavy heavy uh gaze here from rick white but obviously with the atlantic league they have a different I don't want to say a different standard because each league kind of goes through the same, I guess, stress tests for markets. They want their ownership yeah. group. They want the, the good management group. They want the good stadium, the good market. Obviously, the, those go through. But there is a bit of a different caliber. You wouldn't see a stadium like Yogi Berra in the Atlantic League when you're perfectly fine accepting that in the Frontier League. And likewise... You would maybe see it in the American Association, but it certainly wouldn't be a long-term, uh, long-term fix there. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that, um, I, I, yeah, I just don't see how the Atlantic League is able to get to a, to a ten, twelve team league. Maybe, hey, maybe down the road. I mean, especially if Staten Island uh, can get their stuff together, and then you could you could potentially bring them in in the future. Then I think that then I think that's a different conversation. I think a ten-team league is probably ideal, hmm. but uh, the the one thing I'm kind of interested because it, it definitely looks like I think you would agree that when you're looking at markets like Tri City and Vermont and Lowell, they're definitely interested in in a partner league. Oh, they are. Uh, they are. Even Lexington. Yeah. very interested. Right. Yeah. So they're very. They're definitely very interested. That's not really the issue here. I question a little bit. I, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I do question if it's possible for a team to be able to switch from affiliated to um, to independent this quickly on a dime for a schedule to be released in about a month in, in mid January, early February. And because remember, it's not just, I mean, you'd probably think the front office stays similar, but you, you, you have to interview, you have to hire a coaching staff. You, you have to, uh, you have, if there's different, maybe different staff, maybe you do have to hire different staff. Uh, and, and you have to start working on bringing in players to a market that has never been an, an independent market. There's a lot that needs to happen in a short time. I hope they can get it ready for the 2021 season but i'm not i'm not a hundred percent sure that they can again i'm not saying it's impossible but it would have to be a really really fast transition and i guess i'm not i guess that's just me speculating but it, it really does have to happen quick for a, a, a good transition i'm glad you brought this up because this is going to be what i was going to transition to next but it's not even just 
like the things you named, like a coaching staff, a front office staff, players. Those are things that a lot of people see right off the bat. It's also a lot of just getting your orders in, establishing a connection with uh, someone that's going to provide the concessions. It's establishing merchandising deals. It's getting sponsors in. It's a lot of work like that. Even if you want to say that there's these are former affiliated markets. They already have a working relationship with a lot of businesses in the community that will probably jump back on, which will make it a lot easier. Fine. Well and good there. But even still, you need to find a lot of staff. You need to place a lot of orders. You got to do a lot of stuff behind the scenes. Plus, you've had a ballpark that sure was getting used as an office a lot during, you know, the 2020 year. It hasn't played baseball in it for a lot of these ballparks since 19. If it did have baseball in it in 20, it didn't host very much of it. So there's going to be work that needs to be done on that front as well. Not to mention, you're going to have to establish a whole brand and do a whole lot of work to get this thing up to snuff in, let's say, December 11th as we record this. It'll come out on December 12th. You have probably about four months, five months maybe, before you have your opening day. You could probably, if you bring in two teams, let's say, because that's probably the most likely of any possibility. If you bring in two teams, you could probably keep them on the road long enough to where they're in the middle of uh, May. So let's say May 14th is their opening day. You have them on the road for the first three weeks, which is obviously not ideal. It's obviously a lot of stress, but it does give you time to do a lot of work. Even with that, it's not an easy sell. Plus, another thing that a lot of people wouldn't consider they missed the holiday rush they missed out a huge opportunity to sell a lot of tickets and if you're going to assume that people aren't going to be as gung-ho about buying tickets in advance buying season tickets buying ticket plans buying up all sorts of you know pre-sales buying corporate packages buying you know maybe event plans so like a party events or things like that if you're going to assume, which would be a fair assumption to make, that you're going to have a, a tougher time selling it, to miss out on the whole holiday season, that's really tough on any business, but especially one that's in the entertainment business, and especially one that just took a whole year off. And then, yeah. like, like I think you were getting to, and I'll finish my point quick and, and then get your feedback on it, but they do need to do this quickly, obviously, but... You have to assume just because the Atlantic League took one year off doesn't mean that those new teams are only taking one year off. They would have been on the shelf for two years. So it would have been for two years now, 20 and 21, that that community didn't see baseball in any sort of meaningful number. So they've already a lot of at least casuals that don't really pay as much attention, which is a large chunk of your consumer base. I've already kind of adapted to or forgotten that you're worth there. You know, they've gotten used to you not being there. So you have to try and find new ways to bring them in. And that's also a challenge in and of itself. So can you afford to be dormant for two years is really the question. Or yeah. are you better off throwing up a half-baked effort in 21 and hoping it doesn't deter a lot of people? That That's really what this question is going to come down to. Yeah, I think there's no way they can 
they that these franchises could not have baseball for two years. There's just no way. The Atlantic League, absolutely, and along with other leagues like the Frontier League and the American Association, they need to have baseball in 2020 in some capacity. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But I hate I hate to keep going back to New Britain, but I think it's a it's an interesting comparison because there they were a market that was a double A team and then moved down uh, to to move down to the independent ranks and uh, and obviously what so many of these teams are trying to do now. However, the important distinction to make from New Britain, who finished as a Minnesota Twins affiliate, or maybe Colorado Rockies, I don't remember, but but in 2015 they finished as a Double A affiliate, and the next year in 2016 they were but they were into the Atlantic League. The important distinction there is that they knew this was happening for for about a year, year and a half. So obviously, they were building the they were building a a stadium in Hartford to to move the Hartford to to, to then start the Hartford Yard Goats in the 2016 season. The problem is, is you have the MLB who is sitting on their hands for months and months and months and months, and then they just sprung this on their teams now. And you're saying, oh, well, I hope hopefully you can get ready for next season. This is not an easy transition you can make in a few months. This this is something when the bees made the transition, they had about a year, a year and a half to prepare for it, to prepare staff, to, to let their sponsors know about it, uh, to and to make other adjustments. And even then, it still didn't work there. But not, not to say that that transition was the, the big reason behind it, because I'm sure there was more. But you're looking at teams when you when you wait when you wait and wait and wait and wait all the way to all the way to December the beginning of December to make this decision and say all right hopefully now you have like a, you have a few weeks to make to make your decision about your about your team for next year that it is so it is so hard on these teams that that have to make a transition if they're making a transition and yes it's easier for a team that's still somewhat associated with the MLB and the MLB Draft League, and of course the Appalachian League didn't really have to make much of a transition at all. I mean, little, a little bit, I guess. But um, but for these teams that are looking to play in partner leagues next year, th- it is a really tough transition that they have to make really fast. And I think the MLB waiting forever and until December to announce this thing. It really screws these teams. It really does. It does do a disservice by them, I will say. Even though I will say, the more I look into things, the more things are shaping up. I'm starting to soften to it a bit. I still don't like the communities are losing their baseball, certainly. And there's going to be some that call it quits. Like, we didn't even mention the possibility of Auburn, New York, getting another team. I don't really know why we didn't mention it. I just remember uh, hearing some stuff from a bunch of different people that really wasn't... uh, wasn't up the quality so maybe maybe that turns into something i don't know batavia is another ballpark that for a while i was like oh if they were always in danger of losing a team so maybe that's a can-am market and then obviously the can-am doesn't exist anymore so maybe them they're upstate new york too but even still yeah you're all right that by waiting to december a lot of these teams are behind the eight ball now and it does make it a lot harder to say oh we'll keep baseball in the community in some form when it's like well if you would have done this even like in October, you would have given a little bit more runway. You would have given them at least six months then to really start to get things together and been able to form some sort of a plan. But one thing that comes to my mind here, somewhere, this is off the assumption that we'll have a regular opening day, you know, beginning of May, end of April, that general range here. 
for the Atlantic League and then for the uh, Frontier League end of May, beginning of June is their usual uh, run-up time. Same thing with the American Association. So we're assuming that we're going to have fairly regular opening days. But if we were to say baseball doesn't start till the beginning of June, which would really only affect the Atlantic League mainly in like one week of the uh, Frontier League season. But if we were to say that, then would that make it easier? Because it does buy you another two months. I guess it does. I, I, I mean, I, there's, it definitely makes it a little bit easier. Uh, but I, I don't know. I, I think that's kind of inevitable, to be honest with you. I, I, I don't see... I, I think the Atlantic League specifically, if they're bringing in a couple new markets, has to buy them as much time as possible. And I think the other thing we have to factor in as far as league start dates is what's going on with spring training. Because obviously professional athletes are not at the front of the line uh, for for a potential vaccine, and nor should they be. Uh, however, uh, NHL begs to differ. They're buying vaccines. Are they? Yeah, yeah. You didn't see that. Yikes! The plan is for them to buy know. a bunch of vaccines so they can vaccinate their players because travel is essential to them. Yeah, that that's either going to be a lot of fallout or not much at all. I'm not really sure what the deal is, but I saw it last night. They are planning on trying to buy a lot of vaccines to vaccinate their players. Uh, I don't agree with that. But anyway, uh, for, for the MLB, I know that they're definitely not doing that. I mean, maybe that can change. I don't know. Hmm. But, um, but so obviously you won't really have a vaccine in February, March. And for, for a lot of like these professional athletes and they'll be going to spring training. And one thing that's been talked about is you have your 40 man roster go to spring training uh, in in their normal window so you can start the MLB season at a normal date, and then you bring in the rest of your minor leaguers uh, in, in to have spring training in April, essentially, start the minor le- the rest of the minor league season, like double-A and below. So may- maybe you have a little bit more than your 40-man roster, so you have your double-A and below. You're starting the season in like the first or second week of May, Uh However, what, what, what people have to understand is that the independent baseball, uh, the independent leagues, they start their season in uh, either last week of April or beginning of May, or in the case of the Frontier League and American Association, a little bit later into May. That's for a reason, and it's because the, it's meant to have guys that get released from spring training, uh, even at the end of spring training, it's meant to be an avenue for them to go and you still have time for them to um, work in spring training with specific independent teams and then get ready for the season. And, uh, and it's always corresponded. The season is always corresponded with that. However, if the season is like the, the double a uh, high a ball, double a and below, if they're starting in like the second week of May. That's gonna push. That's gonna push indie leagues back. And and uh, I feel like that's really the part that makes me believe that the Atlantic League will have some sort of delayed start in some way. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. When your main income source for players is delayed, then you're gonna be delayed as well. One thing I am interested in, though. Is And this is a a bit of a wild idea, I'll admit. It's certainly not traditional in any sense. But as we know, uh, if there's a place where risks are going to be taken, it's going to be an indie ball. I wonder if there's some sort of plan like this. 
let's say the Atlantic League still able to play 100 games. I think that's fairly realistic that you could get 100 yeah. games in. Yep. They still keep their first half division champion, second half division champion for your postseason. If there's only six teams, then I mean, like, look, your your hands are tied there. You can only have two teams in the postseason. You can't have a four-team playoff. Otherwise, it looks like the Can-Am. And the Can-Am just, League, there you go. Yeah, yeah, then it looks like a gong show is what it looks like. But And you have sub-500 teams making the postseason, which just should never happen in any sport. But we're seeing with the uh, NFC East, it's going to happen. One thing that's a radical idea that I would be interested in seeing is if you said to these teams, okay, you're going to sit out the first 50 games. This will be the two teams that will be coming in. You'll sit out the first 50 games of the year. You'll pick up in the second 50 games. So let's say they start last week of May or second to last week of May. So they would sit out all of May, all of June. They'd start again in July after the All-Star break. Yeah. That's, that's when you bring your two new teams in because that gives you a solid six months of runway from now. To get that going, which actually not a bad, you, you say it's that's it is or it is outside the box. That's not a bad idea. Yeah, because then you're still eligible for the second half. Yeah. Now, of course, there'll be some teams that'll be you know a bit perturbed that like, whoa, what the hell is this? We we have two new teams, two new competition, more Yeah, they'll be annoyed. Some of them will be, but by and large, that may be the best way because you can still get baseball into communities. You have six months of time for a lot of these teams that should be good enough to at least be able to patch the ship through 50 games. And then it buys you a whole off season where you can start to get things back to normal, have it run normally. It also gives you a nice sample window to go, okay, this worked, this didn't work. This looks like something we could improve on. This looks like something that's not going to get better. It gives you a lot of, it, it gives you testing ground. And if you, if one of those teams make the postseason, all the better. It tells you you're closer and you have some of the right pieces in place. I think that could be something that may seem like a bit of an out-there idea, but it does make sense on some level. I think that's a good idea. I honestly ne never thought of that as a possibility. I'm not sure if that's something that the leagues would consider, but I think that um, because it is, it is pretty unorthodox. However, I think that, I mean... On the surface, it, it, it definitely does make some sense. It would be interesting to see how they would put together put together a roster. However, uh, you know, it, it, that, that it, it is an interesting idea. Yeah, because even like if you put together a roster, because I assume one of the first things you'd be doing is hiring a manager, which you could probably get done in March if you were to start doing everything now. Which there's plenty of obviously uh, openings now. We sit, we're going to talk about one uh, manager that was just fired in the uh, or not fired but replaced in the Frontier League. We know there's obviously a bunch of or two in particular guys that are open front were uh, left be or three now technically that were left behind when indie balls went to affiliated ball. Uh, so there are guys. There's openings there certainly. I think you could do it. I imagine a lot of it would probably be making trades with other partner leagues where it's like, look, yeah, uh, we'll take half of your roster for players to be named later <laughs> type deals or maybe raiding uh, recently cut waiver wires. You could probably just start to establish it along the way. Again, it's not ideal, but if your options are being dormant for two years or only being dormant for a year and a half, one's better than the other. Yeah, yeah, I think that 
it, being dormant is not really an option for these teams, but I think if you could give them a couple, like a couple extra months, I think that could really be helpful. Uh, even if, even if the, the league's season is delayed a little bit. So yeah, I, I think you would need to do it through trades. I think you would, I, I feel like fielding a, a, a team that's competitive with like the teams like the ducks and, uh, and I wonder who that. Well, with the Patriots and Skeeters gone, I wonder who's going to step up. Probably High Point. Yeah, you would think. You would uh, think it's probably High Point. Like, high Point and Gastonia have laid a lot of groundwork already. That's true. I, it, I, yeah, I don't know how Gastonia will do player recruiting wise. I guess we'll have to see. Depends but I, I think. Yeah, it depends a lot on who their uh, manager is. We still don't know that Gastonia. Come on, Dave. We don't even know what they're called. Well, we know Rob Pimsner would not like them being called the Hogzillas. We could tell you that for certain. That's right. I like the Hogzillas. I think they're fun. It's minor league baseball. It should be fun with the name. It should be fun. Like the, uh, because, because I think, because people forget because they never actually played, but the, what was formerly known as the Connecticut Tigers for at least it was going to start in the 2020 season. The Connecticut Tiger, Tigers were going to change their name to the Norwich Sea Unicorns. Now that's a name. That's a good name. See, that I just have a, a picture name. of a submarine with a unicorn horn on it. <laughs> I remember it was more of a narwhal, though. I remember that. Yeah, it, it, that's literally what a narwhal is. Yeah. A sea unicorn is a narwhal, uh, but it, but regardless, yeah. I, I think that um, I think yeah, I think you'd have to. I'm not sure they would field a team that would be playoff caliber in, in the second half, but I think it would be good for for the market if if that if it came down to that. I think that would I think that'd be a pretty good option. Yeah, I, like I said, it's just an idea to throw out there, but uh, yeah. yeah. A uh, couple other things I want to hit in this top before we go on to other other things, which shouldn't take too long here. Some of the survivors of this cut, I suppose you could call them, teams that remained affiliated that were rumored to not be. Uh, we knew about Binghamton, but that's still a little bit surprising. Uh, Frederick, in a sense, kind of survives. They're still MLB directly related via the Draft League, which is obviously disappointing to the Atlantic League, and I'm sure my co-host as well. Uh, Ab- yeah. Yep, Aberdeen was a little bit surprising because i thought it was going to be maybe they may get cut but once frederick uh well they're owned by cal ripkin jr so there's Uh, no way that was happening true yeah then the last one i had that was kind of surprising that survived was chattanooga i thought for the longest time chattanooga would drop i was like chattanooga drops that is peak peak atlantic league territory chattanooga yeah I, I would agree, and I think, uh, and, and I think Erie was a little bit surprising, but I do know they they pledged. I, I guess they're they are doing some ballpark renovations, which led yeah. to the Tigers keeping them. But yeah, I agree; those were those were a, those were a little bit surprising. Mm-hmm. Like I I didn't expect the team like trying to be cut. Like if if you told me like. When the first, when this list first came out, oh no, Trenton's going to be cut. I would be I'd be stunned. Mm. But uh, but well, nothing stunning anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Which just imagine if Chattanooga had been cut, then you could put Jackson Chattanooga and the two North Carolina teams in one division. There you go. And then your problems would have been solved because you would have had Boom. your two uh, Pennsylvania teams, Southern Maryland, and you would have had uh, Long Island, with the possibility yeah. of adding, say, like a Lowell and a Tri City. And then you could have tossed in one other team or two other teams. You could have found one other one in like the general New York, New England region. And then if you could have found like a Frederick 
you would have had a nice solid 12 team league and four divisions. That would have been awesome, four, yeah. Or three divisions of four, rather. Yeah. But that would have been ideal, I think. But unfortunately, That's it didn't work dream. out for them. Yeah. That's a dream. Uh, and then the last bit of news on this front uh, the Boise, Idaho Hawks, they were cut. They will make the move into the Pioneer League. So we do know there is one team in independent ball. Welcome to the welcome to the party, boys. There we go. Well, welcome, Boise. Boise's in there. Ah, uh, that's always great to see. So they are actually the first team to officially go from affiliated ball into independent ball. <laughs> there we go. That that could be a job. That could be a Jeopardy question. Exactly. It'll trick everybody. Uh, all right. So with that, I think we said just about everything we can say on uh, the matter. I think we've been at this now for like a solid half hour or two. Or if yeah. not longer, probably actually like 40 minutes. But uh, regardless, I think that's about a uh, summary on that, unless there's anything else you want to uh, put into this topic before we move on. I, I think we covered it all. It's, it's quite. It's been a, quite the era. Okay. Uh, it's, been, it's been quite the era of uh, talking about minor league cuts. We've been at it for a while, but it's finally come to an end. Exactly. Well, kind of come to an end. For as far as minor league and major league baseball are concerned, it's coming to an end. Now we could go back to focusing solely on independent league baseball. Get back to the roots of the show, if you would. That's right. Uh, and with that, we'll move on to actual independent league news. We'll go with the Frontier League first, and then there's one story over in the American Association as well. Uh, so we have the Joliet Slammers. They announced that Aaron and I... I made a cardinal sin mistake here by not looking up how a name is pronounced before I was going to say it on air. And so that means this is going to get butchered in typical uh, indie ball fashion. And so I'm going to believe it's pronounced Nakula. I probably butchered it, but we're going to go with Aaron Nakula uh, for the time being. (laughs) Uh, I'll try to avoid saying his name any further to avoid any further uh, embarrassment on the topic here, but he managed in the Oakland system since 2006, a career record of 803 and 825. He spent the last five years with Vermont, obviously a low A ball, New York Penn league. Uh, So you can see why he is now uh, available to jump somewhere else. He will replace Jeff Isom, who was the manager of the Slammers for the past six years. He put together a decent enough record, uh, 269 to 307 and won a team championship in 2018. So he won the Frontier League then and made two playoff appearances, 16 and 18 in his tenure. But, uh, Nakula, again, I, I'm pretty sure I'm butchering that, uh, becomes the fourth manager in Slammers team history. Uh, from what I view here, he seems like a, a pretty decent hire. Seems like a good manager. Yeah, I think the, the, this hire to me was was interesting, and I think it goes beyond beyond the actual guy they hired, but a little bit more into where he came from. Uh, as we talked about with Bill Lee, the Frontier League, and, and I think the Frontier League was probably the biggest winner out of out of all these uh, out of these partnerships, and now they're everyone's a partner league. I think the Frontier League was the big winner because the Frontier League is going to be much more important in the overall baseball landscape with less rounds in the draft and than guys that are maybe would have been drafted in the twenty first, twenty second, twenty third round are now. Uh, looking to head to the Frontier League to make a name for themselves. And we certainly know that guys uh, are capable of making the majors, even if they were drafted past the 20th round. And I think if you bring in a guy 
like the slammers did. Niakula, Niakula, is that? I is that like anything's better than what I'm doing. So, all right. Well, how about Aaron? So uh, well, just call him the, Aaron. Yeah, the, <laughs> Eric so on the, the show. Correct us. That's right. Uh, and so, I think his background is interesting because he's worked in affiliated ball and with the A's for so long. I think that's all. It's almost kind of a look into the future of the frontier league that it's almost another, like, like another, it's not, of course it's not affiliated ball, but it's probably the closest to affiliated ball than as you'll get as a partner league, just because you're going to have, you're going to have a lot of scouts all over the frontier league. And you have a guy here with, um, who has connections, uh, in, into affiliate with affiliated teams, obviously with the Oakland A's. I'm sure he knows others as well. I, I think you, I, I think he's the first, but I don't think he'll be the last to, to bring in a guy who's worked in with an MLB organization for a while. I don't think it'll be the last guy to make that transition to a, to a, a frontier league manager. It's going to be something to watch and maybe more of a theory of mine, but I think it's it's a pretty good hire, I think. Yeah, I, I definitely see what you're saying. I think that you could see a lot of pipeline type things like this. Obviously, that's something we didn't really even think about during all these cuts is that there's a whole managerial staff that's going to wind up getting cut and having to look for another place to coach. So that could, in theory at least, raise the level of coaching in the Atlantic League and in the independent leagues in general here. And I do wonder, because already those coaches that exist there are very good and they're good at recruiting, but I do wonder if that helps them at least in the short term. You know, you bring in some guys that manage amongst uh, the leagues that were really called, New York Penn League being the one that's probably the most pertinent, but even the rookie ball ones, they saw a lot of guys that will be on the waiver wire that got released from minor leagues. Yeah, good point. They'll know these guys better. So I wonder if that just helps you from a competitive standpoint, which is really when you're talking about a manager, is half of what their job is. The other half's, you know, being a good representative for the team and handling some business. But by and large, front office staff are the primary guys there and, some of the larger teams but from an on the field perspective it makes a lot of sense there and i do wonder like you said with the partnership here if that creates more of a pipeline or if there's more of an insistence on being like look we just cut this dude uh these guys were just fired maybe you guys could help us out and take them for a little bit we're not saying for a long time you know a couple of months and then you could trash them if you want i wonder if it's that kind of a deal or if it's more of a, you know, it is what it is type thing. Yeah, I, I think I think the pipeline could could really be a thing, and I agree that uh, I mean the Frontier League market is looking at guys who are in a single A and uh, who who have played like at the single A level in the past, and um and and maybe he's seen them play or knows them, or maybe he coach and maybe he managed them and so i i do think that it's going to be i think it's a good hire in the sense that he really could bring in some of those guys and he has a better knowledge of the guys who have i guess been recently released and and you have seen with the mass mass minor league cuts you saw uh in the summer this year a lot of those guys were were that were that level and i think that 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 could be really that could be a really interesting fit, and I, I don't think it's the last we'll see of a former affiliated manager uh, moving moving to a partner league. Yes, yeah, certainly not. And I do wonder if in some of these cup markets, 
if Team Struck, if they're willing to go back to the now independent late version of former affiliated teams, because that's going to be a discussion for a lot of teams out in more of the Midwest region. I know in the last segment, we didn't really spend much time talking about teams that could go into the Frontier League or more importantly, the American Association, I suppose it's more pertinent uh, rather than important. Uh, we just kind of glazed over that, but I wonder if they'll keep some of that identity because those Midwestern leagues really are the teams I think are going to benefit the most here. There weren't that many markets that were opened up on the East Coast for independent league ball, but there was certainly a lot in Iowa. There was certainly a lot the further west you went. So I do wonder how much of the identity going down just to the players and the staff that will be kept uh, when they make this transition. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. Uh, with that, the second piece of, uh, I guess, hiring news from the Frontier League, we have some more staff announcements from Ottawa, which they are just knocking this out of the park, forgive the pun. Uh, Gastonia still has yet to give us a manager or a uh, logo even, or even a team name, anything. Meanwhile, Ottawa's just like, you want a team name? Here. You want a logo? Here. You want a manager? Exactly. Here. You want, you want our staff? Here. They're given everything. So Ottawa announced they've hired uh, David Bollock, I believe it's Bollock, and uh, Sebastian Boucher uh, to the team. Uh, Bollock will serve as the team's vice president of sales and operations. He was with the Ottawa Rapids in 2008 and the Can-Am League champion Ottawa champions, it's fitting as that is, in 2016. And uh, he was the assistant GM on that champions team. Uh, Boucher, he is probably, if not the best uh, player to ever play in the, or at least Can-Am League player. Uh, he was just tremendous. If you look at in the, like I know the one article I sent you and that's going to be in the show notes. If you look at some of the numbers he put up and then go to his baseball reference page, he was a very, very productive player for a very long time in the Can-Am. And he did spend about four seasons playing with the champions and he managed the club in 19. He took over for Hal Lanier and uh, Sebastian will serve as the assistant GM to the Ottawa Titans now. So it's definitely, uh, obviously, Boucher has had a ton of success in, in the Can-Am League for, for a long time. As far as his assistant GM role, it's probably, do you think he'll have a, a lot a, a say like in the roster, or is that probably not the role? Or, or he'll be more around like the business end of it, you would think? I would think more business end. I mean, Steve Brooks a very competent hire, and they put together a very good staff right. around him. I mean, that's a young staff, even with Brooke in there, although experienced still. I I would imagine if he wants to give input, it will be listened, but I, and obviously he outranks uh, Brooke, so he's like, I want this guy. He's going to you know, be the tie-breaking vote here, but I don't imagine he's going to interfere with it all too much. Uh, I think this is more of a front office thing than a uh, on-the-field thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I I'd agree then. But yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, I think I think it's a, it's a solid hire. And you're right when um, when you're talking about Ottawa, they are really they're moving quick. Uh, it, it is great. We, we need Gastonia to catch up. Hundred percent there. Any thoughts on Bollock being there? I mean, he's been involved with two of like the last three or so uh, Ottawa teams. So maybe he's a kiss of death hire. Yeah, but potentially. I guess. Uh, it's with with these front office guys that aren't really uh, involved in, base, in like baseball ops. I don't know how much of an effect it'll have on the field, but certainly with the with the team, I think it could be. It, it'll definitely work. Yeah, I think with him, his benefit is also partially 
being involved in clubs that didn't succeed. So he kind of knows how they ran. And it gives you an example of what not to do and trying to, to try and do the opposite of it. And you've seen what's worked in that market before, what hasn't worked. So I think that'll be good. I mean, a lot, to, obviously, on the field, it's a lot, to, uh, a lot more sexier to talk about. But it's also important to still see how things behind the curtain to talk about that a bit as well. Um, right. But with that said, we will uh, transition to the final thing we have for the day, which is the American Association Partnership. Now, I know what you're thinking. They already have two. Well, they made it three. Uh, They partnered with Rebus, which is a technology company. Uh, They all provide overlays for things like merch, uh, trivia, ticket bundles, various forms of fan engagement uh, during the games and on the website. So this will be on their Facebook streams for those Facebook games uh, once a week now, as well as the aabaseball.tv games as well. So there'll be more overlays. Essentially, what they're going to allow you to do is just to interact during the broadcast. So maybe there's a trivia question asked by one of the broadcasters. Rebus will show a graphic with the question and the answers, and you can click through the answer, and then we find out which one's right and how much of the audience uh, got it right or wrong. Uh, maybe they mention a new shirt or a jersey that the team's wearing. Maybe there's a jersey auction. Then there'll be an overlay where you could bid on the jersey without having to leave the stream. Uh, just things like that is what this is going to be. Yeah, I, I think I, I think it's a really it's a really unique way of uh, of really adapting to more people streaming games and and i think it's i think it's a good idea i think to make it more interactive make these broadcasts more interactive with the fans especially on the on these uh facebook live streams that that are going to be free for everybody i think it's a good way to keep fans engaged i think it's a good way for for the american association to potentially grow their fan base and keep and just keep people engaged i I, I think the American Association continues to make different partnerships, but I think this one's definitely a good one. They seem like to be the league that's the most into modernization and just trying a bunch of different things. So no matter how it works out, I give them credit for that. I'll be interested to see if this is one of those things that's really cool and really interactive and I really like, or if it's one of those things that's going to be really, really annoying to me and I just want the pop-ups to go away. Like ideally and i'm not sure if there's going to be this here but i would really like it if there be some sort of a toggle switch so i could just kind of toggle it off if i don't like it but who knows yeah but i that's about all i got for news wise here so with that i think we gave you enough of a show this week it's about two hours long again but you know it's a good show so it's worth it's it it's a good show it's a very good show and uh uh, with that said, I do want to say before we start the plugs, the cold open you did here, that was written by the voice of the uh, Sussex County Miners, Brett Luthner, I believe it's how it's pronounced. Again, we don't do pronunciations, but uh, we're working on trying to get him on the show uh, either next week or in the upcoming weeks. Uh, I was going to say next week or the week after, but then I realized the week after is our Q&A show, which uh, I do remember, and you should remember, that's getting recorded on the 23rd of December. So submit your questions either on social media or an email. We'll tell you where that is in just a second. Uh, but then I realized we don't have another show left in the year. Like the Q&A show is the last episode of the year. I didn't remember that for a second there. Well, there you go. Yeah, so he'll either be on next week or in 2021. I can guarantee you that, but probably next week. But 
keep an eye on uh, the Indie Ball Report social media to have confirmation on that fairly soon. You can follow us on Twitter at Indie Ball Pod. You can follow us on Instagram at Indie Ball Report. Or you could also follow us, or you can also follow the Instagram of my co-host ALPB underscore news as well. All of those are great for staying up to date on the happenings of not only the show, but of independent league baseball as a whole. If you want to submit questions, you can, for the Q&A, you could do so on any of those channels or to our email, indieballreport at gmail.com uh also there's a website we got all the episodes and everything on it indieballreport.com got articles some cool stuff there also the show notes where you can find everything we mentioned today on the show that will be there as well uh you can find the show wherever you find podcasts really except for like iHeartRadio. but you can find us on spotify tune in stitcher podomatic google Podcasts, apple Podcasts. really you know the deal by now wherever we find you wherever you find podcasts you find us i'm running out of steam here so I'm going to cut any other plug. Uh, we have anything else left to add. So my thing left to, and my thing to add today, uh, I, I was talking to, to Nick about, about this off air. It's going to be hockey related. Uh, so a, as we creep ever, ever closer to the start of the NHL season is obviously has been taking way too long at this point, but it looks like we, we are heading for, for an NHL season in mid-January. So uh, it came out, uh, not confirmed, but it did come out, the, the four divisions, because obviously these Canadian teams and not in the NHL can't cross the border. So they had to make four different divisions. I they, knew it. Uh, the proposed divisions, East, Central, West, and Canada d- division. So uh, I did want to say, as a diehard New Jersey Devils fan as, as some of you may know and as Nick definitely knows I was I was hoping for a little bit of growth this year uh, in the in the win-loss column because uh, even obviously it's a short season but um, I was hoping for th- this young team to take the next step however if we're if, if we're not going to be playing any teams outside of our division I'm, I'm maybe maybe go over one division I don't know but Oh my God, the East Division is so stacked and so hard, the Devils are going to get slaughtered. I mean, the, this division, Devils, Rangers, Islanders, Flyers, Capitals, Penguins, Bruins, Sabres. I mean, like, oh my goodness, how are the Devils supposed to win any games? So, despite me wanting wanting to see growth, uh, considering the murderer's row that the Devils are probably going to play during the NHL season... I, my expectations are low, and it is going to be an absolute gauntlet for 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 the Devils this year. Two points. One, I knew you were going to complain about the division alignment. I knew it. You knew it. I knew it because I seen that uh. same thing, and my same thought was, "What the hell is this shit?" We got the Bruins. We swapped out the Blue Jackets and the Canes for the Bruins and the Sabers. That's not fair. It's not. But that was my first thought, so I knew that was what was coming. My second point is. You say, how are the Devils going to win any games with this murderer's row? If you drop murderer's row out from the question there, it's a very viable question for like each of the last five years. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. Th- th- thank you, Rangers fan. I-, I understand. See, I don't know why you struggle at rebuilding so much. It's really easy when you come down to it. I mean, all you need to do is win the lottery <laughs> twice. You should try just, doing just that. Have a, 
just have a pandemic so the the draft lottery is really really weird have a playoff team that loses in the first round and then you just get a generational talent super easy i mean like to be fair y'all had two first overall picks yeah, so, well, we, we, unfortunately, we had it. We had a bozo running the show. I, I, I think Tom Fitzgerald's pretty good. I, I think I, I like what he's done so far. I just think that enjoy Lindy um, Ruff. Yeah, I'm not going to. So I'm enjoying uh, I, it. I'm not, a lot. I'll give I'll give him a chance, but my expectations are not high. They shouldn't be. He's terrible at running a defense. It's a known thing. So I've heard. Yeah, I've so I've watched for the last three years. <laughs> it's just well, it's aggravating. Especially seeing as last year, the only defensive pair that was worth a damn was really Fox and Lindgren. But, you know, I look at this, I go, cool. But the way the Ranger let goes, we'll miss the postseason by like a point or two. And then we'll get Owen Powers in the draft lottery. Yeah, that's definitely how it's going to go. But see, I almost would rather not make the postseason this year than miss next year and then pull like Shane right out. Now, that would be cool. Oh, man, that would be... We'd have legitimately three first lines, and then the fourth line would be like a second line and just about any other team. That'd be fun. Wouldn't that be fun? No, I'm I'm not. Fun is not the word I would use there. Fun would be fun for me, I could tell you that much. I'm already looking forward to watching Artemi Panarin, who's a New York Ranger, and took less money to be a New York Ranger, too. And Yeah. That's all I'll say. In Rangers Town, it's all it's all sunshine. It's just great. I just I don't understand how people struggle with rebuilds. You just need draft lottery and play in the middle of Manhattan. Yeah, we had the draft lottery, and it's and we still suck. Maybe well, trading for PK Subban wasn't such a great idea. Have you also tried getting Jeff Gorton? That also helps a lot. Like it it's helps. not something we've tried, but maybe down the road. Because like. We have, like, a great structure, too. Like, I know we're going to Hockey Talk, which I'm going to keep going on. And if you don't like it, you can just turn the show off. You know what comes next. But, like, Jeff Gordon's a great GM. You have uh, John Davison, who's a terrific president. You have Glenn Sather, whose sole job is, at this point, just keep Jimmy Dolan away from anything operational. Which you have Jimmy Dolan, who, I mean, if you're a Knicks fan, you despise the man. But as a Rangers fan, he's just terrific. Let me tell you, he, he just keeps signing checks. He doesn't he know. He just he, writes it. He just yeah. He just signs his name on the check, and that's about it. Exactly. He's the if the if he did the same things he did with the Rangers that he did that he did if he applies the Ranger theory to the Knicks is what I'm trying to get at. The Knicks fans would love him, but see, Jimmy thinks he knows something about basketball. He knows he knows nothing about hockey, so he just lets competent people run the show. And then even when you get through that whole structure, you still have good structure because you have Chris Drury as the assistant uh, GM of the team and the GM of Hartford, too, who keeps trying to get poached, but he keeps saying, "Now nah, I'm not leaving New York. It's terrific. It's just a terrific structure. It's I'm looking forward to this. Like, I, to be quite honest, at this point, if in 10 years from now we don't have at least one cup, it's been a total disappointment. But... You know, I'm looking forward to the next, like, seven to eight years of what could be a Cap Dynasty team when you look at the players that are on that roster. It's really fun. Uh, a winning record would be cool for me. Yeah, we... I'll take, I'll take a winning record. You know, I really hope someone asks a hockey question in the Q&A because that'll just go... That's going to eat 30 minutes alone. It will. Yeah. It definitely will. 
All right. Uh, well, with that, then I'm just going to pull the first thing off the stack of uh, last thought questions I have here. And that is Taylor Swift's new album, Evermore. Listen to it last night at midnight when it came out. Big Swifty, big fan of T-Swizzle. I will say this much. Uh, she was entirely right. It does keep the same vibe as folklore. Uh, first couple of songs, so-so. Uh, champagne Problems, I was a fan of. However, once you hit, like, the sixth track, I want to say that one's Coney Island. It gets really good. Like, they're all just, like, bangers after that. Like, I'm a really big fan of that. And then the one track that Bonavere's on, when Bonavere comes in, it's like, oh, okay. Now, now we're, now we're cooking now. Like, it, it is a really, really solid album. Would highly recommend it. I put it slightly below folklore, but still extremely good. Yeah, I'm not a big Swifty myself, but I, I, I don't, I don't dislike her by any means, but I, I, I'm glad you're having fun with it with the new album. I am very much so. And I just want to say, regardless of whether or not you like her music or not, it takes a lot to put out two albums in one year. That's true. That's impressive. Plus, she also did the uh, Disney Plus thing, too. Like it. Busy lady. I know, very busy. But uh, with that said, uh, nothing else left to add. You know the drill around here. Uh, don't forget to play ball. <laughs>